0: Hi friends, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Andrew Chen. He's a general partner at venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, an author and board member at Maven, Substack, and Clubhouse. Andrew has worked with some of the fastest growing companies on the planet. He was head of global driver acquisitions at Uber and an early investor in Clubhouse. Plus, he spent three years researching companies like Tinder and Substack to deconstruct how they use network effects to supercharge their growth. Expect to learn how running college parties can help launch a dating app, Andrew's biggest lessons from his time at Uber, the strategic differences between launching and growing an audience, the most pointless metrics that businesses focus on, the most common mistakes companies make when launching, and much more. Andrew is an incredibly sharp fella. I went out for dinner with Sam Parr from My First Million podcast the other day, and he said that Andrew is one of the smartest guys that he knows, And it shows in this, Andrew's had like a front row seat to some of the quickest growing companies over the last 10 years. And some of the lessons that you get to take away from today, I think they're pretty applicable. It doesn't really matter if you're trying to create a a global changing dating app or just launch a normal sized business that requires a little bit of networking and some social gravitas. There's tons to take away from today. Don't forget that you can join the Modern Wisdom Locals community if you want to connect with me and other listeners. Over 2,000 people have already joined and it's free and I'm now doing regular live streams where you can do Q&As. So head to modernwisdom.locals.com and you can sign up immediately. In other news, this episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. I love having cereal. I don't like feeling tired and bloated and uncomfortable after I finished eating it. Thankfully, Magic Spoon has 0 grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only 4 net grams of carbs in each serving. It's only 140 grams per serving, keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. Plus, the flavors are ridiculous. My favorite one is Fruity, which literally tastes like Fruity Pebbles, and has 0 grams of sugar. I don't know What Magic, they've managed to do to turn cereal into a legitimate protein snack. But it's like gains all the way home right now. Everyone's trying to eat better, but healthy breakfasts are sometimes a little bit boring. And Magic Spoon has managed to fix that problem. So not only do you get to have your cereal, but you also get to look massive if you're training later that day. Tastes exactly like regular cereal from your childhood. There's cocoa and peanut butter, fruity and frosted. Plus, if you head to magicspoon.com slash modernwisdom, you can grab a variety pack and try it out today. And if you use the code modernwisdom, you will save $5 off your order, plus Magic Spoon ship internationally. So if you're in the UK, you can get it. It's a good present. If you want to get someone something that's a bit cool and a bit different for Christmas, you can get them a variety pack of Protein cereal, which tastes better than most normal cereals, head to magicspoon.com/slash/modernwisdom and use the code Modern Wisdom at checkout to save five dollars off your first variety pack. In other, other news, this episode is brought to you by Pure Sport CBD. You might be feeling anxious, stressed, or struggling to focus. Pure Sport's ultra high-quality CBD can help to relax your mind and soothe your body. If you're struggling to switch off and sleep on a night time, their Unwind Blend is a perfect place to start. 1500 milligrams of CBD alongside valerian root and chamomile and lavender and vitamin B All put together, it's an all-natural mix that your body needs every day, which helps to reduce stress and enhance your mood. You'll find yourself falling to sleep more quickly, staying asleep throughout the night, and waking up feeling more rested and revitalized in the morning. So if you are with somebody this Christmas who struggles to sleep, you know that they need a bit of assistance with that. This would be an awesome present to get them. Also, they do a mushroom mind and body blend where they've taken all the guesswork out of how to add mushrooms into your daily supplement regime, and you just take the capsules. They also have the highest quality double third-party tested CBD products on the planet. Whether you're looking for roll-ons to help muscle soreness or tinctures to help you calm and relax yourself throughout the day, Head to bit.ly slash cbdwisdom, that's bit.ly slash cbdwisdom, and the code MW20 will get you a big fat 20% discount of everything, and they ship internationally, so no matter where you are, you can get all of these products direct to your door. bit.ly slash cbdwisdom and MW20 at checkout for a big fat 20% discount. And in final news, this episode is brought to you by Element. You do not need to have a coffee first thing in the morning. Your adenosine system that caffeine acts on isn't active for the first 90 minutes of the day, but your adrenal system that salt acts on is Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of sodium, potassium, and magnesium with none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, and no BS. You need to make sure that you are properly hydrated and that you have electrolytes. It plays a critical role in reducing muscle cramps and fatigue while it optimizes brain health, regulates your appetite, and helps to curb cravings. Element is the exclusive hydration partner to a tonne of high performers all around the world including navy seals fbi sniper teams and marines and you can get a free sample pack today all that you need to do is cover the cost of shipping you pay nothing for the pack so you get eight flavors all eight flavors that they do so that's a week and a day that you can try this out for replace your morning coffee with element in water and it's an absolute game changer five dollars shipping to the u.s or three pounds eighty four to the UK. They even have a refund policy. So if you're upset at the three pounds eighty four or five dollars that you spent, they'll give you that back too. Head to drinklmnt.com slash modern wisdom. That's drink lmnt.com slash modern wisdom to get a free sample pack. You don't pay for it, just cover the cost of the shipping. Try it out today. But now it is time for the wise and wonderful Andrew Chen. Andrew Chen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Man, we were just talking. How did you find the time to write a 400 page book with all of the other stuff that you do? <laughs>
1: uh, well, the, the, the fun part about it was it was just like having two jobs um, at once. And this was also one where um, having having the COVID, uh, you know, break actually um, made it so that when you're stuck at home, it's like having your own uh, Walden Pond. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're just stuck in your office and you're like, what am I going to do? I'm just going to, you know, write this whole thing. Uh, but no, I, actually, um, I, I ended up um, doing a bunch of really funny things just to force myself to write. And so I not only put everything in my calendar, I actually um, – uh, turned on all the, I had a separate computer with just the apps for writing on it. And I turned on all the like kid protection safe things. So I blocked, you know, Twitter and Reddit and all my favorite websites, uh, you know, from the thing. And, uh, and then, and then I just, I just tried to write as, as, as much as I could. Um, so anyway, it was, it, it, it took three years, but, but now, now I'm here, which is great.
0: Big lift, man. It's so funny now that, um, our habits on particular machines, mean that we need to create our own like you say walled off gardens that are these little oases of work and these stupid games you've got a time box which i use as well (laughs) to lock your phone away i know that you've got one of those um yeah man how important obviously so your your job advising companies investing is an executive role like by definition it's an advisory role but you do a lot of writing. So how important has having a, a public-facing communication channel been for someone whose main job is kind of a bit more back of house?
1: Yeah, well, I think um, one, of, one of the big things that, um, that the people think about as, as an investor, if you break down the skill set, you basically can say there is a sourcing part of the job, right? That's, getting, that's, that's making sure that all the most interesting startups come to you and you're, you're meeting them in the first place. There is a picking Part of the job where you try to make sure that uh, you're picking the right startups and that is very very hard it's very random especially because you're often um, in, in in the case of uh, you know clubhouse for example i met the team when they were two people they had 500 daily active users when we led the investment i was one of the first hundred or so um, users on the product and so it's it's so early it's so random um, so how can you make sure that that you're picking the best ones there's a third uh, dimension which is winning um, which is making sure that the the startups that have a lot of options for investors that they pick you over over others and then there's operating and making sure that you're actually helping the companies after the investment and so The nice thing about writing a book is it actually touches a lot of different aspects of those four skills. And so um, when when you you write a book, it's obviously, uh, you know, number one, um, kind of an an advertisement of your of your of your skills and your expertise out in the world. That's very um, helpful. And people um, know me uh, uh, partly from my blog and from my social media already. And so the book is kind of an extension of that. Um, Writing the book forces you to uh, refine your thinking uh, down on, 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 on a piece of paper is that you're trying to describe to people. And so that has actually been really helpful for, from a picking standpoint, because now I'm like, okay, yeah, what retention rates do I think about? How do I evaluate if a company actually is, has momentum or not? Um, and then, and then for winning, um, you know, the, the, it's, it's by being an expert in the space, it's great. And then operating, um, it's so, it's going to be very, very helpful once the book is out, um, in, in six days to be able to actually hand the book to entrepreneurs and say, you know, Hey, this is, this is how I think about things. Um, and, 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 uh, you know, and have a high-density way to convey a lot of uh, information.
0: Is there a Matthew principle going on here with the best-known investors then? Surely the startups that think that they've got the best opportunity of succeeding want to be attached to the investors and the advisors that are the highest profile because they think this person's going to make me be more successful. So if you've got this very well-read blog, this Twitter, this book that's going to be hopefully successful, that means more people come to you are you starting to see, or has it already happened that it's stratified out into the haves and the have nots a little bit in the <laughs> investing world?
1: It's just changing so much. Okay, so there's a great book actually that uh, I'd love to recommend, which is um, uh, called Valley Boy. And it's uh, by um, uh, Tom Perkins, who started Kleiner Perkins, one of the one of the oldest venture capital firms. And if and if you go back to th- that period of time, he was literally driving around um, the Midwest, knocking on the doors of insurance companies, trying to get them to, to 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 back you know venture capital. And so and and so because of that that whole early period of venture capital, which was in the 1960s, 1970s, was very much about how do we even raise money from Uh, pension funds and insurance companies and things like that to even go invest and so what that's tended to select for in Many of the early years is even if the initial VCs were um, operators and folks who would really build companies by the second or third or fourth generation, they tended to actually get people that were more like kind of finance backgrounds, um, you know, in all this. And so we've gone through this long evolution and this circle back where now I think, um, you know, social media and Twitter is just such a huge part of, uh, of, 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 being, um, uh, of being an investor because now capital is plentiful. And so folks that are, um, uh, amazing on Twitter, like my friend, uh, Turner Novak, who all he does is post memes, um, you know, on, on Twitter, or you have, uh, you know, Ryan Hoover and you have a bunch of these folks that just have amazing, um, uh, you know, um, uh, social media followings are able to raise money and are able to deploy. So I, I always joke that you know a, a lot of what we've done over the last 10 years of of uh, startups has been to give anyone credible two or three million dollars, um, you know, to to, to 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 pursue their dream, which I think is amazing. It's great for the world. Um, but now what we're going to do is we're going to run another experiment, which is to um, give all the social media um, uh, you know influencers and give anyone who's who's all the, all the CEOs that have a lot of influencers five or ten million dollars to invest in people they think are smart and we're going to see if that creates even more startups um and on one hand you could say oh is that is that you know is, is this a good use of money i mean but look i mean Startups are 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 really the core source of innovation um in the economy and um and and I, I for one am excited to let anyone pursue their dreams um on this, even if I think they're 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 ridiculous because sometimes they turn into amazing rocket companies and electric car companies and you know things like that. uh and, and I certainly invest in many things that are are for are for kids and teenagers that nobody understands either. So um so I I I think it's a great thing.
0: Given the entire uh, lifespan of startups and investing, are you happy that you're here right now? Would you have found it really cool to have been driving around in the 70s? Or do you think that in 30 or 40 or 50 years time, there's going to be something incredibly interesting? Or is this a, a hockey stick sort of inflection moment that's a pretty cool time to be an investor?
1: I think it's an awesome time to be an investor, but I I always loved, I always love the idea of being able to hit the fast forward button. um, If if I can, I think if anything, what we're going to, what we're seeing is um, a rapid uh, decentralization and removal of gatekeepers in the startup industry overall. Um, And and, going going back to that original example, in in the 70s or 80s, it was a very, very small group of people who were investing. It was one street, Sandhill Road, right next to Stanford University. And it was literally um, operators and former professors investing in the top grad students at Stanford. It was a very narrow uh, you know, group that you're talking about, and, and through that narrow group, we got great companies like Cisco, like Oracle, like uh, like Google, like you know many of these. But I, I think I think what we're seeing now is just this incredible decentralization. Obviously, driven driven a lot actually by the pandemic, driven a lot by um, you know the prevalence of remote work, uh, driven by uh, Web3 and the decentralized uh, community that has formed around it. And so I think more and more we're going to see we're going to think about um, this idea of Sand Hill Road as almost being kind of and, and Silicon Valley is 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 you know no longer exists. I mean all, all the all the companies, all the really interesting companies for the last ten years have been formed in San Francisco, not Silicon Valley anyway, not next to Stanford. All all everything in the city, all the Airbnbs, all the Ubers, all the um all the Slacks and so on have all been San Francisco. So I think a lot of this is 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 now I think slowly translating into more of like a state of mind. Um, it's the Silicon Valley state of mind as opposed to um, thinking about it as if it's it's uh, um, it's it's this fixed thing. So I'm 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 very excited about the trend, and I think that um, we're we're gonna we're gonna just continue. And 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 I think that it's it's the same thing that's happening in entertainment. It's the same thing that's happening in entertainment, where where if uh, um, uh, where where having blogging software and social media means that um, you to put something out, you don't need to talk to uh, a media corporation, you don't have to get a book deal. Um, it's the same thing that's happening in music. It's the same thing that's happening in um, in 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 many many industries throughout, and so it's it's a really exciting trend.
0: It's kind of dumb that people were still constrained geographically in the age of the internet and it took a global pandemic to liberate the (laughs) chains a little bit. It feels like it was probably a little bit overdue. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Way overdue, and I think a lot of the the hubs that um, that have formed, especially in um, in Europe, in the UK. I was just in London a couple months ago, and um, it could, there there could not have been a stronger moment uh, for for the startup community there, with the number of VCs and investments that are happening there. There's a lot happening in Latin America right now. Um, there's a lot happening in in Asia, Southeast Asia for a long time, and obviously in China. And I think what, what a lot of it, the, the reason why this a lot of it this existed was when I moved to the Bay Area in uh, 2007, if you wanted to learn about these kind of really interesting esoteric uh, topics, if you wanted to learn about, okay, how do I build a product that takes advantage of viral marketing features? Um, how do I measure virality? Okay, oh, there's this viral factor thing. How do I measure retention? Oh, there are these, these things called cohort curves. You had to literally talk to the people. Like you literally had to go talk to the operators that were building the companies and ask them. Um, I, I originally met, for example, Eric Reese, um, who wrote The Lean Startup many years ago. And, um, and, and that company was doing a lot around retention curves. And nobody, nobody had written it down. Nobody had written it down. So, you, so I literally just talked to Eric and just asked him how they were doing things. And we just talked, talked about it and how, how he was building the idea around Lean Startup. And I thought it was really interesting. Um, but these days, it's like that's all being pushed out into the world, you know, we have, we have endless, um, uh, you know, we have podcasts, we have, uh, we have social media, we have, um, we have books, we have all these things. And, and I think, um, what that means is that's enabling a much, much broader set of, uh, individuals from any country. Um, and, and I, I think, I think it's fantastic. It's, it's, it's a really, um, amazing time for, for, to be a founder. What do you
0: think most people don't understand about network effects?
1: Well, I, I want to one of the case studies that I use in the book is um, is Google Plus versus Facebook, and I use this story because it's such a fascinating one, and we see it all the time, which is a bigger company sees a startup being successful and tries to just add a bunch of features and tries to uh, copy it, clone it you know, trying try to make it, trying to make it happen. And we're seeing it actually right now with, uh, with, with Twitter and Spotify and, and, uh, clubhouse, you know, for example, um, you know, this year, and we're also seeing it with, um, um, I, I, I predict that we will start to see a lot of, uh, sort of cloning behavior happening for larger companies who want Sorry, to get is it
0: Spotify into- creating an equivalent of spaces and clubhouse.
1: They're, they they have yeah they they have they have built one and motherfuckers they, they, they've been <laughs> 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 it's fine I love those guys and, and they, they should take their shot uh, and, and and it's great uh, but but I would say is uh, um, what what you see in a lot of these is and I use Google Plus as the example is that um, when Google saw that Facebook was so successful they also started a social network um, project. Uh, to take it over. And the way they did it was they quickly built a, a ton of features, they made it a huge priority inside of um, the executives. And in order to get growth, what they did was they just put the Google Plus link on the google.com homepage. Okay? You could put any link on the google.com homepage and it would have 100 million users like immediately. Right, and that's exactly what happened. Right, if you go back and you read the news reports, what happened was Google Plus had you know 20 million users, and then 50 million users, and 100 million users. And it Looked like it was going to work, and then within two years, it was like over. They like shut it all down. <laughs> right, even though it was you know successful. And then, and, and and I think the reason is because um, when you get into into network effects, and I think this this is maybe a good time for us to cover the definition a little bit. These are there, there is a secret to the products that have been built out of Silicon Valley, which is that uh, many of the largest products that have ever been built, um, whether these are social media apps, whether these are marketplace companies, whether these are uh, collaboration tools like Slack and Zoom and Dropbox and Airtable and Notion and so on, all of these so- pieces of software ultimately connect different people together for an activity. Right. And so, um, Airbnb is connecting hosts and guests for a travel based activity, um, clubhouses covering, uh, listeners and content creators, um, for, 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 a, a social media, um, type, uh, activity and so on. And what network effects tells you is it, for this style of product, these are products where the more users that use them, the more valuable the products become. Right. And the telephone is a good example of that. The telephone by itself is useless. And uh, there's an amazing quote by Theodore Vail, who was um, chairman of the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, AKA AT&T, that basically says, look, telephone's worthless. Its value completely depends on the number of connections that the network allows you to to have. And I think that's true. And so what that means is, on one hand, um, that means that if you have a product that has a lot of connections, has a lot of users, It's very powerful. It can grow on its own. It can tap into viral growth. It can use its network to acquire more customers. It will increase its retention and engagement over time. It will become a better business model over time because more people will upgrade when their friends are using the product. But simultaneously, and I'll get back to Google Plus now, it also means that if you use a product and none of your friends are on it or they're only lightly engaged, then the product is just not valuable. It's not interesting to you. And that and that is the cold start problem, right? It, that is the cold start problem because a product that is uh, valuable, more valuable when more people use it. The, the converse of that means that it is not valuable when no one's using it. And so the funny thing about Google Plus, um, to go to go back to these, this example, is when you're inside of a big company, and thank God people think this way, when you're when you are inside of a a, a big company, you want the biggest numbers as fast as you can. You want to do a big launch. You want to uh, do the Steve Jobs turtleneck thing um, and get up on stage and announce this amazing new thing that you've done. Um, but what it means is you often just get a spray spray random spray of users that aren't really densely connected with each other. Versus, I think. That this is the, the 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 whole theory around the cold start problem. The book lays out why it is that so many of these products often start in this small niche and tend to grow from there. Um, that's why so many products grow start from high schools and colleges, like Snapchat and Facebook and Tinder, all started in colleges and high schools and grow from there. That's why um, a lot of the new B2B products we, we we see grow from individual teams inside of a company before growing and taking over the company like a slack or a zoom or a Dropbox you know that's how that's how they grow um, and and marketplaces like Airbnb start out in Austin Texas at South by Southwest at a particular moment in time and uber starts out in San Francisco and then grows city to city to city I think it's it's, it's really the, the the fundamental explanation for why it is that these these products tend to grow in this way
0: does this mean that some growth marketers and companies are perhaps not realizing the value of small individual types of interactions when they're first starting out, because they're potentially not going to scale over a longer period of time. That everyone's looking at where can I apply the maximum leverage? When can I look at scaling? But I imagine that getting a product from zero to ten thousand users or zero to one hundred thousand users is very different to getting a product from one million to a hundred million users.
1: That's right. That's right. Exactly. And I think you have to divide it into these individual phases. And Paul Graham, who is co-founder of Y Combinator, had an amazing essay um, many years back called "Do Things That Don't Scale." And um, and and I and I want to read just a, a, a sentence or two from this essay because I I think it's it's so um, uh, fascinating. And and he's he's espousing kind of the merits of just doing these wildly unscalable things that don't just don't sound like they make sense. And 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 this is the first one that he talks about. The most common unscalable thing founders have to do at the start is to recruit users manually. Nearly all startups have to. You can't wait for users to come to you. You have to go out and get them. And then he goes on to talk about Stripe and how they literally would individually try to recruit people in the Y Combinator uh, you know class in order to use use the product. And and, and I think it's it's uh, uh when you're at a larger company, or when you come from a mind of broad-based marketing, you think about reach, you think about breadth, you think about building an impact across a, a huge, a huge amount of, uh, of, of of airspace. And the problem is that's just not how startups um, should create network effects-based companies. You have to be very, very manual. You have to start. And build very stable, uh, what I call atomic networks. These are networks that are stable on their own. You have to know how many um, users you need to get an atomic network going. So so, so specifically, um, a product like Zoom, if one of the guys I interviewed for the book is Eric Wan, who's CEO and, 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 and co-founder of Zoom. And I asked him, how many users do you need for Zoom to be valuable, for people to use it over and over and over again? And I think we all know that it's valuable with even two or three people right Um, you you can you can have calls and it's great you can have meetings it's fantastic something like slack on the other hand is better when it is being used by five or ten people on a team together Um, that makes more sense but if you zoom out something like Airbnb or something like uber I mean you you talk to the early Airbnb people they say you need at least 300 listings in a city before Airbnb is useful for that city for Uber. You want to be able to hit a button and get a car in under 15 minutes. And what that means is you probably need a couple dozen drivers online at any given time in order for it to work. And so that concept of an atomic network, what is the smallest network that you can build that's stable and can grow on its own and people can use the product successfully, is a really important concept. Because if you can build one atomic network and you can build a second atomic network and a third atomic network, well, you can probably build 10 or 20 or 30 or 50. Now, that doesn't mean that you can build 1,000. That doesn't mean that you can build 100,000 of these networks. Because once you get to that, you start to need to not do things manually, and you need to start thinking about scale. And that's when growth marketing becomes really important. That's when thinking about referral programs. That's when you start hiring many, many thousands of people um to build these companies but but here's the funny part chris which is that for in a larger company what ends up happening is it's almost like the companies become so successful that they forget how to solve the cold start problem yep. in the first place this is
0: exactly what i had in my head <laughs> so when you've got someone like google who decides we're going to launch a social media platform the presumption is we're basically too big to fail we've got all of these network effects already in place because we have access passive access to a, i don't know how much but an absolute terrifying amount of traffic that you can just put onto the Google homepage, but you forget that these atomic networks need to be in place, that also it's not just about adoption, it's about use, it's about ensuring that use is congealed around particular groups of people. It's pointless having a hundred million people all disparate and not connected, as opposed to if you had one million people split up into thousand person friend groups.
1: That's right. That's right. And, and and so thank God these big companies think this way. Otherwise, my business of startups and venture capital would not uh, would 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 not exist. Um, and and then just to add to that, um, I think the other asymmetry when you're a, a big company trying to build a, a new product is that um, ultimately every one of these networks, once they get too big, they start to face really really severe problems that are just hard to solve. One of the big problems is How do you deal with market saturation? You've been tripling, quadrupling, quintupling for so many years that eventually you just run out of people. You know, if you have a product that's being used by a billion users, how do you double or triple or quadruple that? At some point, what's an example of that? Well, I mean, obviously, all the Facebook platforms are like this. I mean, Facebook has has something like uh, two billion daily active users, and so you know, what do you, what do you what do you what do you do? How how do you how do you grow that right? And you can grow engagement, but it becomes much harder to grow your total user base. Population uh, encouragement—that's what we need. Yeah, a yes, breeding yeah, that's program. Right, that's right. <laughs> a breeding program. Yes, that's probably what they need. Um, and uh, which is why they're starting a dating app, actually. Um, that, that's 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 maybe the, the the secret plan in there. Um, and and so I think when you when you when you look at that. Um, Uh, That becomes one issue. Another issue is overcrowding. Every single one of these products, you know, uh, when 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 you um, email is a great example. Email is amazing when you're just at a smaller team and you're just emailing a couple people. It's great. As soon as you're somewhere where, um, and and many of your listeners will have this have have uh, a personal experience with this. If you work at a company with 10,000 people or 50,000 people, your corporate email is like a disaster. Like there's just too much. Um, and, and that's true for social media and that's true for, you know, any one of these. And I think that's why, um, for, for many of these products, what happens is as they, um, build their networks to become much, much, much larger, they actually start to hit the ceiling that really limits their ability to, to grow, um, you know, be, be beyond that point. And, and I think what it means is that the, these larger companies that we think of as invincible, you know, we often think of a product, uh, uh, like, um, like Facebook to be invincible, inevitably what happens is actually you feel like when you use the main Facebook app, Chris, I don't know last time you 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 went on there, it's mostly um uh you know d- dog pictures and uh, birthday birthday parties at this point. It's it's almost like there's actually just too many people, you know, on on in the Facebook platform and so you actually want to segment it down so that you can just talk to your friends, right? And and no one wants to use the same social network as their dad, right? And so you get to this very interesting point where these companies that we think of as Invincible many times actually are very weak at their core and that's what provides the opportunity for startups to go zoom in to one piece of Functionality in these companies and just pick it off and just do that one part really really well and to build their own atomic networks and scale their Own atomic networks to just make that happen Um, And so and 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 so I think that's another important conclusion um, out, out of the theories of the book It's a weird
0: situation to get into where for almost all of human history. We've wanted more information so a scarcity of information has been the limiting factor for acquiring wisdom, wealth, health, happiness, partners, whatever it is that you want. And within the last decade, that has flipped from it being a scarcity <laughs> to it being an abundance. And now the main skill that you need is no longer being able to forage for information. It's being able to filter information. Yeah, That's, I- that absolutely. blows my mind, man.
1: Ten- well, I... I- i was just gonna say i went to uh the, the getty uh museum in 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 la and one of the things that they had that i loved was um these you know the manuscripts that the monks would uh copy directly and that's how you manually would make these books and these books if you go and you you know look at look them up i think that it's, it's something crazy like each book was a luxury item because it was like fifty thousand dollars of modern day you know history so today, if you had like a library that meant you were just like loaded because you had like a hundred books. That was like, oh man, you're like a- you're, you're 70 like a lifetimes
0: <laughs> of monk work that's gone into your library. Yeah, exactly.
1: That's right, that's right. And now, yeah, exactly. Now, now, we're, now we're inverted. Now, now it's like we have so much uh, you know, to deal with. But that's exactly what creates the opportunity. That's why you see social apps. Like if you told me that like TikTok could build a social platform and all it was was just gonna be dance videos, and they were going to be able to go from that to you know all these other things. I think a lot of people would say, well, why doesn't why doesn't uh, YouTube just own this? You know it, it's their videos, right? But it turns out that actually these niches, if you can build the proper networks around them, if you invent a new media format, it becomes really, really powerful. Oh,
0: that's a really interesting point. So it's not necessarily about having the widest access to potential audience or the widest access to the market. It's about having a particular type of person on the same platform that creates a, a magnified network effect. So you you mentioned it before that Facebook now just feels like the most boomery platform ever. And it's, I, don't, I use it for work. That's it. It's just to keep up with people. And you think, why has that happened? Well, because of how widely it's been adopted, some of the reasons that made it cool in the first place have been selected out and that's now right. you start to go forward into a more selective uh sort of social media, something like Twitter, where you don't have to be on Facebook you're expected to be friends with the people that you are friends with. I, I don't follow my mum on or, or my dad on <laughs> Twitter. <You> <laughs> on Twitter. I'm friends with them on Facebook, but I don't follow them on Twitter. So, you yeah. know, I don't that's sorry, Dad. Um and the same thing kind of goes for each social, social media network and each individual product. But it's so interesting to think about the fact that someone may look at, let's say someone looks at TikTok, right? And they say, that's, that's cringe. What are these people doing, doing these dance videos? It's like, it's not for you. That platform right. isn't for you and it doesn't need to be for you. So this presumption that platforms should aim to grow at any cost to just acquire users doesn't really make sense. It's acquire the right users. As, as well as you can
1: that's that's right and, and, and I think um you know the funny thing is maybe it's just the natural life cycle of these things that they all become boomery um, over time and, and, dude and, and, when and they and start saying cycle, it becomes
0: you know? millennially I'm going to feel I'm going to want to throw up in my own mouth I'm still in the, the beautiful grace period where millennially isn't too bad but and boomery is like a slight when that pivots god I'm going to hate myself I'm going to look back on this as, conversation as, and go you self-righteous <laughs> wanker what were you doing
1: <laughs> nice yeah as as a as a fellow uh, elder millennial I, I i I feel you on this um yeah i I think that the um one, one of the concepts that that um that exists in all of these networks is that there's often a hard side of a network and an easy side of a network, and what I mean by that is um if you take a network like Uber, we would pay five hundred dollars to get a driver to sign up on the platform, but we maybe would only pay ten or twenty bucks. To get a rider to download the app and, and try it. And the reason is because the drivers just do more work. They're just more important. You know, they they actually do they actually do a lot. And, and that is and this concept is true no matter what product category you're looking at within within these um, network products. Content creators on YouTube are just more valuable than an individual viewer. Uh, that's why all these companies are paying millions of dollars to content creators. And and that's that's all happening right now. Um, and because the the content creators are the hard side of the network. Um, funny enough, if you talk to the Tinder folks, online dating, the attractive members of the of 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 uh, an online dating platform, they're the hard side of the network. They're really hard to get. They're really hard to retain. Everybody wants them, and so because of that, I think to to, to go back to the, the the point that you were making, Chris when you build a new product, you need to have some new innovation that makes the hard side of the network even more, it needs to be really compelling for them. And and what that means is if you're building Instagram, you need to make it so that the photo filters make the content creators on there, make their photos look amazing. Um, Tinder, I actually have an amazing story um, in in the book about about Tinder, which is I sat down with Sean Rad, who was um, uh, early co-founder and he was the CEO of the company for many years. And uh, shout out to, to, to Sean, um, who also, by the way, had a major uh, court uh, uh, win today over his it's very contested early um, uh, history of the company, which we can which we can talk about briefly. But um, but he talked about starting Tinder in the very, very early days that. Before Tinder, it used to be, it was more like a, a like classified listing. This is like what Match.com was, was set up as. So basically, you'd have Bob. Bob would put his uh, profile up on, on Match.com, and anyone could message Bob. And the problem is, let's say that Bob is just like a very attractive person, very well-educated, very successful. Um, the experience for him actually sucks, because uh, the way that Sean described it to me, he said, look, you go to work all day, and you answer email. And the last thing you want to do is, um, you know, open up your, your your dating app, and it's just full of messages for you to go and and answer. That's more just email, at yeah. Yeah, email, more work, email at email home, yeah. Email in dating. Exactly, that's right. And at least, you know, when you're at a bar or something, you can be like, oh, yeah, these two people are talking to this attractive person. I'm just going to, like, talk to their friend over on the side or something. Like, in the internet, there was no, the, in early online dating, there was no such thing. So people's inboxes would just be flooded. And so what Tinder did that was, I think, very, very subtle, it's not something that is very well understood, I think, is that by creating a right swipe and a left swipe, it allowed the most attractive members of the network to control the number of matches that they were getting at any given time. So they were never overwhelmed. And and then, by the way, also, they made these these decisions, like connecting your Facebook and doing all these other things to make the experience for the attractive, uh, desirable part of the network uh, more effective. And so that's all to say that I think whenever you're building a new platform uh, for any of these where where it's a new network, um, you need to have some kind of an innovation like that. Otherwise, what ends up happening is they they would just rather use the other thing, the old thing, right? Um, Because if you build a YouTube and then you build something that looks just like YouTube, then it's like, well, YouTube has all the audience. It has all the other creators on there. I'm just going to go use that. You have to do something different enough. And I think this is one of the reasons why um, I was so, so excited about investing in Clubhouse, is that for folks like um, you that have been able to build an audience primarily using audio, as you know, creating really high quality content in audio is just different than creating high quality video content which is different than writing high quality content. And there's gotta be a place for people who are really successful at audio um, to, 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 to build an audience. And so, um, so, so I, I always think about that and, and trying to reset the order of, 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 of things. You know, let me, way.
0: let me stress test the, uh, the clubhouse idea a little bit then. What is it that is helping the hard side of the problem in clubhouse? Because presumably there are low value conversations where 16 people just shouted each other. <laughs> and There are high value <laughs> conversations where you accidentally get elon musk naval and eric weinstein talking about the kanye west's new album and there's you know that that's uh, people share it and pirate it onto youtube like some old school sort of like radio station how do you on clubhouse incentivize the high quality conversations
1: yeah well i i think that um uh uh, Eugene way has an amazing essay and he was um, uh, he's, Yo, Eugene way is an unbelievable writer, such an amazing writer. Yes. And, and this is his like kind of bread and butter kind of area. Um, and he has this concept that I love, which is called, he calls it old money. Okay. Which is if you are a video creator, one of the reasons, even if you produce high quality content that you may not be that excited about getting on YouTube now is that there's too much old money on on youtube people with millions and millions of followers and how are you going to compete if you're going to do something from scratch and so in many ways you're incentivized to actually find a new platform a new network to join that um, is just getting started and if you're just getting started maybe you have a better chance to get to millions of subscribers so every new network uh has this inherent attraction to it that if it works you can reset the order you can reset the hierarchy of success and you can climb to the top more easily so rather Creators than have
0: the opportunity for first mover advantage as well.
1: Correct, correct, exactly, exactly. And so I think what's happening is in the podcast world which which Chris you you know so much about one of the reasons I've been reluctant to actually start a podcast has been I'm just like oh man there's like so many podcasts out there it's so hard to build an audience Who the fuck By am I up
0: against Tim Ferris, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. And then you have like so and then and the tools are so you know clunky uh, and the whole thing is just annoying and um and and what should i be doing instead and so i think the, the one of the most interesting things on clubhouse is that most of the content creators on clubhouse most of the people that start rooms most of the people that um are 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 sh- creating recurring shows are not podcasters for the most part they are brand new content creators that are not interested in spinning up the whole stack to build a podcast. Um, they have no interest in, um, uh, you know, trying to build a podcast audience from zero against all the other people. And instead they're joining a new hierarchy, um, where they can, they can just build a new show. And, um, and if clubhouse makes the tools very easy, if clubhouse is able to continue growing, um, their audience as they have, then they can, they can build a new network and and go from there.
0: It seems to me like the trend is going from more sophisticated to easier and uh, more frictionless. So if you were to take YouTube and compare that with TikTok. So TikTok has inbuilt editing. It's got music there ready to go. You can, everybody expects you to do it with your iPhone. In fact, if you do it with something that's more sophisticated than an iPhone you almost look a little bit like you're trying too hard. Um, you compare Clubhouse with podcasts. You've got this disgusting RSS feed back-end thing with how it distributes. It's a, it's archaic and insane and medieval and primitive. Uh, and then you've got press a button on your phone and it, it streams live to the entire world and people can tune in and watch it. Um, do you see that trend can't continue forever or else you end up oversimplifying a product out of existence and you just end up That's with right. nothing. Uh, where do you see in terms of trends that moving
1: next? Yeah, I, I think I think just to zoom out kind of historically, right? You have to ask yourself, why did this focus on quality and curation? Where does it come from in the first place? And and um, And this is true, you know, we were talking about books. So this is true for radio stations. This is true for starting up a TV show um right these are all these things were all very very hard and the reason is because um in the pre-digital world it was all about uh, finite self shelf space it was all about having finite numbers of channels finite number of time slots and so if you are going to have a retail store that has a limited amount of square footage and a limited amount of shelf space every single book should be the best book and so what that does is that affects everything down the chain right it means that then the publisher Wants to select for only the most credential people. They want to select for only the the, the 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 topics that they think are going to sell the best. And then, as an author, you end up going into the same thing as well. And again, you can you can you can make make similar um, analogies for all the other uh, media types. And I think the the most amazing thing about the internet is there's no shelf space, right? You can just do whatever you want. And because you could do whatever you want, that means that the very first thing, in my opinion, that gets filled is all the casual content. That is has has never had a place uh, to, to, to exist in the world. That vacuum needs to be filled right away. And so I think that that ease of use, um, uh, as as you say, everything is like you, you publish a, a content. You know, you publish text to the internet using you hit a button, publish text. You hit a button, you publish video. You hit a button, you you publish um, audio, and off you go. And and that and that's fantastic. And I, and I hope that continues. Um, on the flip side, though, I also hope that. Uh, the internet and this, this ever-burgeoning market also provides a um, ability for the top-end, highest-quality content to also be successful. And I think we're seeing it already. We're seeing it because it, we're in the golden age of, uh, you know, dramatic streaming, uh, you know, television right now. And the fact that Netflix has infinite shelf space, they can just recommend different things to different people, means that they can create. You know these these massive budgets to go fund television the television shows that we've all wanted to watch and uh and and make a lot more sense there than than streaming. Similarly, I'm a, a board member of Substack, um where where you know they're doing the same. You know they have um a, a program called Pro where they've been able to get um some of the most amazing authors and writers um from from all over the place to join Substack. Um and this new business model of having customers actually pay directly into newsletters to directly support writers has meant that writers who are making you know writers are horribly underpaid um in 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 the world and um you know you you get some of the best writers you can pull them out we have writers on substack that are making five million plus per year now i mean just amazing um and 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 the reason for that is because the whole market for that is is just wildly inefficient and so i also hope that um uh, all of this internet stuff also makes the highest end content, long form content, serious content also grow as much as all the short form, silly stuff uh, that we see. All 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 the cat memes and all the um, <laughs> you know all the dance videos that are out there.
0: Yeah, the two biggest success stories. I'm aware Substack's an absolute monster, but the two that have been closest to my heart, or that I've watched the most closely, was uh, Matthew Iglesias, so co-founder mm-hmm. of Vice. Um, yep. You know, you think Vice is that's pretty big time had its own tv channel huge youtube huge website blogging writing etc and he decides to leave to go and do his substack and the other one was scott alexander uh yeah. moving from slate star codex to astral codex 10 and that is that 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 blew my mind um you know he mentioned scott's quite open door and he breaks the fourth wall with a lot of this stuff and he was talking about just how amazing the team had been at substack the fact that they'd helped him to port over some disgusting amount of blog posts, like 10,000 <laughs> articles or something. That was all going to be ported over. Um, and he's now liberated to do his psychiatry stuff as he wants in a new location. And that was all as a middle finger to the New York Times. It's like, okay, you're going you're gonna to dox somebody. Well, the internet's going to Brazilian jiu-jitsu that around, and you're going to end up being the genesis of this person's new life.
1: That's right, that's right, exactly and I think that that's exactly the point about um, uh, having infinite shelf space is that it means that any as long as there's market demand um, in, in, in in these in these networks that are being formed, um, all of a sudden you're gonna see um, uh, the hard side of the network emerge um, and and start to supply whether it's content, or it's video or it's, you know, in, in the case of, uh, you know, uh, B2B, um, you know, products, it's, 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 uh, uh, you know, meetings and conferences and all of that as well. Um, and, and so I think, I think that this is, um, uh, one of the, one of the really important trends that's happening in, in the market, which is that, um, rather than thinking about big monolithic networks that are everywhere, everything's open, everything's public. Increasingly, a lot of this is going towards these private communities, private networks, Web3 is obviously a very interesting, you know, trend as well, because what it's going to do is it's going to allow these communities to actually support themselves and to monetize. You look at these projects like Friends with Benefits, you look at these um, NFTs like, uh, uh, you know, Bored Apes and so on. It's very much the idea of network effects baked into uh, crypto and Web3 all together in one. And I think we're going to see a lot of new um, business models that are gonna, um, you know, emerge here, and and it's it's going to be really interesting. Are you familiar with Shiny Object Social Club? No, I'm not. Tell tell me about Shiny Object Social Club. So
0: my buddy is one of the main guys behind it. I've got a couple of friends. Tom is a big part of it, and. Um, they have created... It's a Discord server and now a, a, a bigger, bigger community. Connor, my designer, has been a big a big part of pushing it as well. All around the NFT space. Um, but they've like reversed backwards, integrated themselves with creators. They've forwards vertically integrated themselves with uh, the people that actually want to buy. They've horizontally integrated themselves into designers, into people that supply, into people that understand coding, into people that have got different NFT projects and different... And it's just... It's cool, man. You've got um a network effect project that has had a community of people create a network around it that is a social club
1: <laughs>
0: it's the most meta thing ever but it's so sick meta. yeah it's here was a question i had for you so we're talking about web 3 and the internet becoming increasingly decentralized is that going to change the nature of network effects moving forward
1: yeah it, it's 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 uh, a i i struggled so much in writing the book um, on how much crypto, how much Web3 to put in. Um, because as you know, it's changing every week. So I'm like, oh man, if I write something uh, and I put it in there, it's going to be outdated in, in, in a month. And so, you know, what, what, what am I going to do? So I, I have a smattering of things in there about, uh, about Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, uh, but I kind of kept it high level. So we'll have to wait for the, 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 the revised second edition for me to add all the web three, um, examples, uh, you know, in, into all this, but, 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 but I think, I think that's right. I think, I think it is, it is what maybe the most interesting, um, aspect of, um, writing this book about network of X and seeing web three kind of intersect at the same time because to 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 go to the example of just bitcoin at, at, at the most you know basic people value bitcoin because other people value bitcoin right and it's circular in that way and in the same way if you were to start a, uh, a a different type of uh coin an altcoin and no one was interested in it even if you forked the bitcoin code and you were running all the same code and everything um you could have all the software exactly the same but if you don't have the network uh, then it doesn't work. And so, so at its core, Web three has this cold start problem in all of these different, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, ways. And NFTs in the same thing. And um, uh, crypto gaming is the same thing. If no one's playing Axie Infinity, it wouldn't be as valuable as what it is. And so, so I think what what we're starting to see is first that all of these theories, um, I think, are going to apply to Web three. Number one, and then I think number two, I think what's gonna what's gonna be very interesting is we're just gonna see new creative ways that weren't possible in um, in in the Web two era. I'll I'll give an example. In for Uber, um, one of the programs that I ran at Uber was the "Give $10, Get $10" $10 referral program at Uber, and this was an amazing program. We spent $300 million a year on this program when when I was there, um, and this was a period where we were adding three percent of the world's population to Uber um, as, as as the app, and it was just growing. It was just it was just hockey sticking. Um, but in the end, we it, we would not be able to give shares of Uber to the drivers or the riders you know that's very hard right there you have the sec of all these things you have all these regulatory issues um and 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 so on um and and so it was all about just giving people credit inside of the ride share system what's amazing about web 3 is that um it's it's really unlocking the ability for the network participants to own a piece of the upside right a lot of web 2 is about maybe you can get a revenue share maybe you can get kind of like um you know some discounts Um, It's very cash-based, but there's no ownership. And so I think by having ownership, well, what happens? Well, then kind of have like a super referral program. You have like an amazing referral program because it means that um, your users actually own a piece of the network, and they are heavily incentivized to promote.
0: It's ethical multi-level marketing on steroids. <laughs>
1: that's right. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. And and I think that we are just in the very very earliest stages. We're going to see. We're going to see very complicated, you know, referral kind of contracts models. If you refer one person, this is what you get. If you have five people, this is what you get. Um, if you're one of the first hundred people versus the first thousand people, you're going to have you're you're, you're going to have various kinds of you know. And I think we're we're going to do a wild amount of experimentation, um, and iteration. On making this all work and so i'm I'm very excited from like a growth marketing um kind of user acquisition lens that we're going to have to try all of this um all all, all this stuff out
0: talking about metrics that companies follow what do you think are some of the most useless metrics that people have focused on
1: oh yeah well i mean the the whole lens of um of of this theory is that the top level numbers are the most meaningless Um, your total number of users you know your total amount of revenue you know those are those are what um what uh, uh are often referred to as these vanity metrics because they make you feel good they're the biggest numbers in the whole business but in the end the question is on a given like I'm a lot more interested for Substack um what the top writers are making and are they happy and what's the churn rate on the subscribers on an individual basis I'm a lot more interested in that than the overall revenue of the business. Um, For Clubhouse, I'm a lot more interested in um, how many recurring shows are they seeing? How many content creators are coming back and creating show after show after show? And are they getting the audiences that they want? Um, That's a lot more interesting than the total number of daily active users. And so I think um, the more operational you are, the more you're focused on that authenticity, the more you need to dig in from from the user's perspective, and figure out what it is that, that they're into, as opposed to the, the the top level numbers.
0: I've just realized the original way that Clubhouse launched with that text only invite mechanism. That's a structural way of creating atomic networks.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 uh, and maybe I'll talk a little bit about invite mechanics for for a little bit. Um, so what ends up happening that's so interesting with invites, as opposed to buying a user off of Facebook or Google, right? I, I, I hate it when startups pay Google or Facebook. I, if, if I can avoid it, I, I, I try to avoid it. Um, and the reason for that, the reason why inviting is so powerful is because it means that every user that's joining probably already definitely knows at least one person that's already in the network. Definitely knows that. That's just, you know, fact. But very likely knows multiple people on the network. And so what ends up happening is um, one of the case studies I cover, I, I interviewed Reid Hoffman, um, who was a uh, co-founder and, and originally CEO of LinkedIn. And he talked about how in the very, very earliest days, what they found was there's a structure in the professional market, which is that it's very, very hard to get Bill Gates to sign up for a professional network product because everyone wants an intro to Bill Gates. He doesn't need to talk to more people. So he just he, he, he's fine. Um, but. Uh, there are tons and tons of people that are kind of still operating. They're still in the mid-level. They're still very open-minded. They still want to connect with a lot of people. And they're the entrepreneurs and the founders and the operators. And so what LinkedIn did in the earliest years was they basically said, um, okay, we're going to launch, and we're going to give everyone in the company a ton of invites, and we're just going to invite all of our friends and all of the people in the tech community. And what they found was that very quickly started to grow rapidly just on its own. And they eventually made it so that once they got enough users, they could actually remove the invite constraint because just based on word of mouth, on average, most users would join and already know a couple people on the platform. But there's an
0: exclusivity um, element here as well, which adds a sense right. of prestige to being invited.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. And and obviously, you know, LinkedIn is, is much more diffuse now. It's much more, you know, it doesn't have that. But like in the earliest years, I think that's right. I think I think all of these apps. Um, one of the things about invite only is there's a lot of reasons to do invite only. One is I think the most important and, and understated reason is, is exactly the one that you put your finger on, Chris, which is making sure that people already have connections. The second is honestly for a lot of these products, they, they just don't want to scale their infrastructure that fast. If you're growing, you know, at one point Clubhouse is growing 50% a week. You know, it's like very hard to keep your servers just up and running when you're when you're when you're doubling more than doubling um, every uh, every every month. You know, that's very very hard. And then and then the third is you definitely do get a lot of buzz just from people thinking about you know feeling left out. Now the funny thing is, that's not enough to sustain your product. Because if you get a lot of people coming in and they're all there for the buzz, and it turns out that their friends aren't in the product and it's not working, then it's just not going to work. Because these days, how many invites do we get into random apps? It's just not special anymore. And so I think you still need, um, you know, you still need at its core, you you still need, uh, you know, the the, the engagement and the product to be amazing in order for it to be useful. Are you familiar with Raya? Yes. The celebrity dating app? Yes, I, I've, I've heard of it as uh, um, uh, Instagram models dating um, uh, uh, tech uh, millionaires. Is, is, that, is that accurate? I'm uh, not on it, so.
0: No, n- neither am I, but uh, my buddy <laughs> my is a very famous comedian, told me about it. Uh, two, two Netflix specials, very, very well known. And uh, <laughs> he said with a, a lot of aplomb that he wasn't accepted onto it and his, his invite's still pending. <laughs> but with that, when you sign up, you it, it connects to your phone book and you go through and you see all of your phone contacts that are already users on Raya. And then yep. you select the ones that you think will attest to you being a worthy member. And they receive a notification inside of the app saying, do you know this person? So they're, they're looking for a, uh, a, almost like a referral scheme uh, for quality uh, to make sure that people are of the of the correct caliber, you mm-hmm. had um you had some cool stories clutter. about how Tinder started as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, and, and and I just wanted to add on to what you just said, which is one of the fascinating things about viral growth in in a case like that. Most people think of viral growth as you know you put out a really cool video and everyone shares it and it's like goes viral. That's that that, that that's not what I mean. Um, what is really fascinating is there is a science behind viral growth which is if, if you can get 1,000 users who use your app to then invite another 1,000 users, well, those users are going to invite another 1,000 users and so on and so on and so forth, and it'll just continue to grow. Now, if a 1,000 of your users only invite 500, then that group will invite 250, right, because it's about half, and then the 250 will invite 125, and eventually it'll kind of like die down. And it turns out that that ratio you can measure as a viral factor... And you think like the R naught? It's the R
0: naught yes. for yes.
1: Ap- yes. Well, that's right. Yeah. Well, now we're all uh, amateur uh, epidemiologists, and so we actually know all these terms. Yeah. R naught, exactly. And and so what ends up happening is if if you can calculate that, um, it means that then you can come up with clever ideas on how it is that you should um, you know increase that. And I think this whole references thing it sounds like a very clever way for them to disguise an invite strategy. Alongside a um, uh, you know a, a, something that 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 is aligned with their brand, um, and 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 to bring it together, um, yeah. And, and, and so uh, and then maybe I'll maybe I'll cover Tinder because it's such a it's a, such a fascinating um, early story, on how they solved the cold start problem um, as as our as our final topic. Um, but the um, so so Tinder originally was started um, uh, Sean Rad Justin Mateen. Uh, and, 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 uh, John Bedin. and John Bedeen and John Bedeen was the original iOS engineer on it, and he actually kept a, a, a bunch of cards playing cards on his desk and he 'd kind of play with the cards and When they built Tinder for the first time, originally, if you look at the original screenshots, there was actually a check mark and an X in order to pass and accept there was no, there was no swiping, and then John actually added the swiping because um, he just thought it was fun, and so he just went off and, 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 and did it and now it 's this iconic you know thing. And so the funny thing is, when they originally announced it, they just tried to get all their friends onto the platform. They would just text their friends They'd be like, hey, I'm starting a new dating app. I think you should be on it. And the funny thing, is, if you think about it that way, that's kind of like an insult. That's like, you seem like you're lonely. I think you should probably be on this dating app. You know, it's not the best sell. It's not the best sell. And so what they realized was they were like, okay, how do we get... How do we get we all we need is we need a couple hundred really desirable people on the app at the same time and if there's awesome people on the app people will stick and so they ended up actually um, coming up with this amazing idea which is they were going to sponsor and throw a party for one of the really popular girls on campus it was her birthday party. But, and it was going to be amazing. They were going to like bust people from campus, and then they were going to have like rent out this huge house and but they were going to have bouncers in the front. It was going to be very exclusive and you have you have to have installed the Tinder app um, and uh and 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 you'd have to have um, set up your profile in order for it to work and so they got five hundred people to this party and they had an amazing party and the next day, people opened up the app and they were like, "Wow, here's all these people that I wanted to talk to that I didn't talk to yesterday." And using those, that, that one party at USC, they were able to prove that they could take over an entire campus. And once they knew they could take over an entire campus, then they would try, they would be able to do this on a second campus and a third campus. And that became the core of the, the Tinder strategy. Was so they were finding the cool, networks. the
0: cool person or the cute girl who had the big birthday party coming up. That's right. Run it. Make sure everyone had Tinder. That's There's right. an atomic network for this campus, this campus, this campus. That's
1: right. And once you get enough of them together, then they start to join. You get USC and you get UCLA, then you get LA, right? And then if you can get LA, you get New York and you get San Francisco, right? And it kind of um, you know spread from, spread from there. Um, but Chris, it, this is this is so wonderful to be able to uh, t- talk to you about uh, about the new book, and I really appreciate um, being being on the podcast. I'm a, I'm a huge fan, and so it's great to finally be able to talk.
0: My pleasure, Man. Where should people go if they want to check out more of your work?
1: Yeah. So um, the the, the book, uh, all the pre-order links are on coldstart.com. And then my main blog where I've been writing for over 10 years and I've been publishing, um, I'm up up to almost a thousand essays is andrewchen.com.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Chris. Andrew, thank you, man.
1: All right. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget that you can get a list of 100 books that you should read before you die by going to chriswillex.com/books, and it'll add you to my three-minute Monday newsletter, and it's all free. The whole thing's free. chriswillex.com/books Also, don't forget you can get a $5 discount on your first variety pack of cereal by heading to magicspoon.com slash modernwisdom and using the code modernwisdom at checkout. You can get a 20% discount site-wide off all full-priced items by going to bit.ly slash cbdwisdom and the code mw20 at checkout. And you can get a free sample pack of element salt sticks by going to drinklmnt.com slash Modern wisdom, pay nothing for the pack and just pay for the shipping. I'll see you next time.